Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. This time we've got the second part of our interview with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez advisor Robert Hockett. Um, if you missed the first episode, we'll, we'll link it in the description um, in case you're curious. So uh, without further ado, let's dive right in. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I mean, something very formative for me, and it's sort of surprising that it would have been formative because it was, you know, kind of, I was already pretty far along in life, um, was the occupation of Wall Street uh, back in 2011. So, Mm. you know, back in uh, basically from mid-September approximately through mid-November, it's basically the 17th of September through the 17th of November, uh, I was working at the New York Fed at that time. I worked I, I worked at the New York Fed for quite a while, even while I was teaching, sort of moonlighting. And so Zuccotti Park, as you guys might know, is just a couple of blocks away from the New York Fed. And so what I would do during the entirety of the occupation is I would work by day at the New York Fed. Then I'd walk over to the park when I left work. And I would hang out and camp out all night with the occupation as part of it and with a, as a member of a few committees like the Alternative Banking Committee and the Occupy mm-hmm. SEC Committee. Mm-hmm. And then I'd come back in the morning to my apartment down here, downtown, wash up, redress, and go back over to the Fed. And the thing that was totally and utterly and wonder, uh, you know, wonderfully amazing about – there are a lot of things that were wonderfully amazing about the occupation in Tukati Park – But the coolest thing of all is it really was itself a a modeling of what a kind of collective deliberative democracy would look like. And the human microphone that was we became kind of famous for was not only a kind of a sort of a a wonderfully let's get 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 back to intrinsically versus uh, uh, sort of instrumentally good stuff. It was not only an instrumentally good thing in the sense that it enabled any one person's voice to be amplified over the entire park without having to use electronic microphones. It was also an intrinsic good because I found at least because what happened was as part of the human microphone, you literally had to mouth everybody's words who had mm. something to say to the group, even somebody who was disagreeing with you. If there was a debate going on, you had to repeat what your opponent was saying and your opponent had to repeat what you were saying. And there was something very beautiful about that. It, it, it really, it not only sort of symbolized, but it kind of enacted our being one, our sort of stepping into mm. each other's shoes. And it also had this kind of beautiful, almost liturgical, and there's another Greek word, right? Liturgos, I think. There was something even liturgical about it in in a kind of call and response sort of way. So there was something really remarkably kind of church-like and liturgical and deeply democratic and deeply sort of identifying with the other, if I can put it in that kind of vaguely literary critic critic sort of way, deeply identifying with the other about it as well. And as a result, I think all of us were all of us who were involved in that movement and who were part of that that scene in other cities as well, of course, were just profoundly affected by it and changed by it. I don't think I've been the same person since, even though I was pretty pretty crazy lefty going into it or I wouldn't have gone into it, I guess. But but you know what I mean. Yeah. So one way to think about one way at least I find it personally kind of fun and, and, and helpful and illuminating to think about the Green New Deal is as in a certain sense to put in place or to sort of unfold a kind of national counterpart to our so-called General Assembly at Zuccotti Park and in other sort of equivalent places all over over the world uh, during the so-called occupation, right? Because during Mm -hmm. that time, we really were collectively deliberating even to the point of repeating each other's words in order that everybody could hear everybody's words. And there's never been, I don't think, a better 
uh, enactment of or symbolization of the idea of you know out of many one and out of one you know e pluribus mm. to go to go Latin now e pluribus yeah. unum right I mean that there really was a kind of a oneness and a manyness at the same time of all of us we were acting jointly and severally at the same time it was incredibly beautiful and I don't see why the country can't do it and in a certain sense why the world can't do it I love it yeah um, so glad so. that's uh, that that's very beautiful um, but I would like to <clears throat> maybe pull this back a little bit so some more concrete stuff if you still got some sure. like, little time um, oh yeah, all the time, all the time in the world, you guys. As much as you <laughs> wonderful, do, as much as you like. Wonderful. Um, I love these conversations. Great, yeah. We should all so be great. like this. So, um, the I've been looking into you know, and 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 some of the stuff I've been writing over the last few months, um, the issues of um, hydropower and nuclear power, and uh-huh. so you look at the current. Uh, U.S. energy power generation portfolio, like about 4,000 terawatt hours per uh, per year. Um, And nuclear is about 20% of that. And uh, a lot of nuclear, well, a number of nuclear plants over the last few years have been shutting down because they're basically under the current price regime, um, just not competitive with natural gas. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, these plants are getting on in years. You know, some of them are past their operational lifespan, and they need some expensive maintenance, and it just doesn't pay. Um, and on the other hand, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of dams in this country. Um, uh, there, there was a, uh, a Oak Ridge laboratory study I was reading that, that um, you know, if— even if you if if you were to to put uh, power installations on on all the uh, uh, water projects in this country that don't have um, any uh, don't don't have any power capacity on them now, and then you were to build out a, a theoretical capacity in in areas outside of national parks, wilderness areas, and uh, wild and scenic rivers. You could potentially get about four hundred terawatt hours, something like that. Um, in conversations with you know climate-focused uh, types, environmentalists, they 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 tend to really not like that that type of uh, argument to say that we should you know new nuclear appears to be kind of troubled. You know, Westinghouse went bankrupt because they the cost blowed on the on the plant they try to build in Georgia, I believe. Um, but and you know like the 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 ecological damage from from some water projects you know Glen Canyon Dam and stuff was really bad but um, you know there there's a sense I think you know looking at these these immense capacities and the necessity of having to build out lots and lots and lots of of zero carbon power as fast as we can um, that you really can't overlook these type of of uh, options um, do you think that that uh, you know, factions of the kind of climate justice community, the the the, the folks behind, uh, you know, the Green New Deal will will have to sort of, you know, swallow some of these un, un, 
uncomfortable policies, you know, some subsidies to at least keep the nuclear fleet in operation for, you know, the next couple of decades and maybe build a bunch of new power plants, uh, hydropower plants, just because like we can't, we can't get by without that, that, uh, power. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I guess I, I can't speak for, for, for everybody and it, it's hard to know precisely maybe, you know, sort of what the numbers or percentages are of people who would be willing to countenance this or willing to countenance that and, and sort of under what, what circumstances. But, but one thing I, I feel pretty confident in saying uh, is that as a whole, uh, and maybe even to a person, um, those who are, you know, sort of gung-ho about the Green New Deal and playing a role in conceiving it and, and developing it and, 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 and sort of strategizing about how best to sort of sequence the various parts of it um, that we sort of elaborate over, over time. My, my guess is that all of us who are involved in those capacities are probably pretty much of the following opinion, namely, you know, try to get to completely renewable as quickly as possible and don't foreclose the prospect that we can don't, in other words, assume that we can't, that it's just too much, that it's just too big, too big a bite to, to sort of chew or whatever. Um, try, you know, make a massive effort to, you know, to, to get to that point that quickly. But at the same time, don't start, you know, sort of tossing stuff that is currently being used before you've gotten to its replacements. You see what I mean? It, in, in, in my, it, I think one reason we're probably all agreed to something like that maxim or something like that principle is because, in a sense, you can think of it as a simple corollary to or a simple entailment, a kind of a theorem derivable from, oh, there's another Greek word, I think, right? Or theorem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another theorem, in a sense, derivable from the broaden the menu imperative that we really have in mind here, right? So, in other words, if the idea is to increase optionality, to grow the menu of possibilities really, really quickly, and to render cost-effective various renewable or non-carbon-emittive or at least carbon-neutral modalities that are currently not cost-effective so that then people can voluntarily sort of transfer over to them from what we do now, then it almost would seem to follow uh, again, as a kind of theorem from that, that you don't actually eliminate other stuff until people are actually able to do those transitions, right? To make those transitions over to those other menu choices. Another way to say this might be, let's say that you've got a menu. Let's, let's actually use a real menu as a kind of a metaphor instead of just using the word as a kind of a simile where we, mm. we imagine as, as a metaphor, we've, we've got like we're in a restaurant. We're, we're a bunch of people. We go to a restaurant or we always go to the same restaurant and the menu just has like, you know, uh, hamburgers and hanger steaks and pork chops on it or something. Um, and then somebody says, well, you know what, you know, this stuff's unhealthy. It's also kind of ethically wrong. It treats animals uh, shabbily. Uh, it doesn't recognize their rights. We really ought to move toward um, a, a vegan uh, menu. Um, and then somebody says, well, but it takes a bit. We have to find out who's going to supply the vegan stuff, what we're going to have on this menu, what we're actually going to eat, where we're going to get it, who are the reliable suppliers. Um, what we would do, I would think, would be steadily to sort of add these vegan options to the menu and steadily make them more attractive than the other mm -hmm. options 
so that you would at least start by getting, you know, a lot of people would now suddenly start eating those other options on the menu and would actually migrate away from the unhealthy and unethical stuff. You know, be that as it may, either way, one thing I'm pretty sure we wouldn't do would be to say, oh, we're just going to take all that meat off the, off the menu. We're just going to have literally nothing on the menu until we come up with right. vegan stuff, right. right? So I'm guessing that you know probably most of us are on board with the idea of we move as quickly as possible to pure renewable and that we're perfectly okay with, before we get there, using stuff that we do, but, but also maybe changing the balance of the portfolio among the things that we already do. For example, if natural gas is cleaner than coal and some places are in the process of transitioning to natural gas from coal we say well yeah keep doing that while we develop these other things that don't involve burning stuff at all um i'm thinking that most of us would probably be perfectly on board or cool with that and not you know just saying let's go and shut everything down at once and ban all flights you know as some republicans <laughs> have suggested the green new right. deal secretly no, it's, wants to do it's, it's because they they think we want people to suffer they they, they exactly. right they don't that's it's like we we want them to not have any options they like or something. Yeah, right? we're that, monks, that's... right? We want to we we, we want to wear hair shirts, right? Or we want to join <laughs> one of those sects where you sort of you know thrash your back with uh, with, yes. with thistles, you know, so that you bleed. I and mean, no, that's that's not what we're about, right? Well, it's funny. Like one moment they'll describe us that way, like we're a bunch of sort of sadomasochistic aesthetics. Uh, right. And then, and, the and next then we're hippie, hippie free love, uh, right? Like, yeah, or, or, or yeah. we're champagne socialist, or we're <laughs> you know, it. or we're sort of sybaritic, you know, kind of corrupt bastards. And it's just you know, I mean, I guess they really ought to try to get their story straight for one thing. But, <laughs> but the problem is, as it as it as it currently stands, I mean, straight or otherwise, I mean, there's so, there doesn't seem to be a single element of their story about us that's. That's that's true, uh, or coherent, right? Uh, so, I don't know. The, the funny, the thing that cracks me up most about this is that, you know, if you were actually a thoughtful right winger or a thoughtful capitalist um, who didn't prejudge the issue but actually looked at it before coming up, drawing any sort of provisional conclusions at all. I would think you'd be pretty excited about this because we're, we're talking about massive government stimulus, which usually benefits capitalists too. Um, right. Last I, I can't I can't think of a massive stimulus this country has ever had that didn't benefit a bunch of capitalists. Um, we're talking about a, a massive boost to economic growth, which tends to make capitalists prosper as well. We're talking about actually mobilizing the entire society around the rapid uh, growth of new energy forms and new methods of manufacturing or modalities of manufacturing and new modalities of providing infrastructure and the like. And, you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of money to be made by other people. There was a I, I talked to some Bloomberg people um, just a little less than a week ago. They were they were terrific. But. Um, they were asking me, you know, what about Wall Street and the Green New Deal and what about industry and the Green New Deal? And, you know, I raised the, the usual uh, cautionary notes and so forth. But one thing that emerged in our conversation that I hadn't realized myself, they certainly informed me, was that, you know, apparently Wall Street is looking to make, you know, they, they view uh, sort of the green tech as a potentially $12 trillion industry that they would love to get in on. Now, to me, to my mind, that's sort of good news and bad news, right? I mean, the good news is, boy, even they want to get in on it. That suggests that there's at least some prima facie case to be made for the for the proposition that this might benefit moneyed people too. The bad news is that you know it means we're going to have to be extra vigilant about making sure these people don't commandeer it or don't you know well, that's right, that's the key, it, you know, because yeah. that's what they will try to do. There's no doubt about that, you know.
They'll say, oh, we've already got shovel-ready stuff. Why don't you let us do it? We've got a great idea for your little Green New Deal plan. Cha-ching, 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 <laughs> right? And, and that's, that'll, of course, be a completely counter-democratic plan. And a completely count, it'll, it'll just run yes. completely contrary to the spirit of the whole thing, you know? So um, not, not to mention the letter of the thing insofar as, you know, as the letters develop, right? So, so we have to be on the lookout for all of that stuff. But, but the, the one kernel of good news in there, I guess, the silver lining around that otherwise pretty you know, ominous looking cloud is the fact that, well, you know, if, if Moneybags wants to get, on, get in on the act, Moneybags must think that there's, you know, that there's gain to be had here. Um, and what that means in turn is that, you know, even if we don't make it a, a kind of gain that can be captured by individuals and put into their own pockets and then excluding, you know, excluding the rest of us from, even if it remains, uh, even if it continues to take the form of, say, you know, positive externalities that aren't capturable in the kind of monetizable sense, um, then that's what we'll do, right? That's the thing to do. And I, my own, my own sort of general maxim on things like this is, you know, don't monetize anything unless it actually just is much easier to do it when it's monetized. But if you can do it just as well without monetizing it, then God, don't monetize it, whatever you do. <laughs> well, yeah, be, because, I mean, the, the main thing is whether they make money or not, what they want is the control and the power yeah. over the decision making, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. so that's the thing we can't do. We can, we can promise them that they would benefit, as everyone will, right, yeah. <laughs> from, yeah. from, from, this, from this vision. Mm -hmm. But what, what we can't do is cede control to private interests who don't care about the common good and the collective. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and that reminds me of something else, Alexi. Um, you know, some people have, I, and some, some interviews I've done in the last um, maybe week or week and a half or so, some people say, now what about this, you know, benefiting, um, you know, sort of traditionally excluded communities or traditionally disadvantaged communities or currently, you know, profoundly poverty stricken uh, communities? Um, is that really the best way to proceed with the New Deal? Is that is that prioritizing the kind of uh, social welfare or justice aspects of the Green New Deal over the green aspects of the Green New Deal? And, and my answer to those questions is always the same, and it seems like it's maybe worth mentioning that answer here even, even before you ask the, the question, and that is that I actually think this is another one of these cases where you have this kind of, a kind of providential convergence, because if you think about it, right, insofar as we are environmentally degraded, and infrastructurally backward and economically and productively backward well where we are most backward in those particular ways is by definition in the least well-to-do communities and in the most traditionally excluded and unjustly done by communities and furthermore it ain't a coincidence that these also happen to be the most polluted and the most filth-filled communities, right? That's right. Think of Flint, Michigan, for example. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that would be like job one for any upgrade of, say, water supply technology. And it's also a primarily African-American neighborhood. And it's not an area. And that's not a coincidence. Right. No, envi <laughs> you know? environmental racism is a new field of study for a reason. Yeah, for a very good reason, right? And, and one of the upshots that means is, you know, for, I, I have a funny feeling that the three of us probably think of the racism part as the part that's most salient. And therefore, we're probably most keen on eliminating the racism first such that if you had to choose between eliminating the racism and you know clean and, and and sort of 
uh, upgrading technology, we would say eliminate the racism. Kind of like I would prioritize the right to a job over the efficiency benefits that come from a job guarantee. But notwithstanding all of that, as it happens, push doesn't come to shove in these cases. You actually do get better environmental cleanup bang for your buck precisely by first targeting those places that are hardest hit. And that happens to be, at the same time, to help out first those areas that have been traditionally excluded for ethnic reasons or racial reasons. That's um, just because that's the way history has worked, right? That we've basically you know, exported or, or sort of uh, concentrated most of our crap uh, among people who we have cared least about. So, um, you know, you get massive bang for the buck in, in sort of starting with these areas, and that's the efficiency reason to start there. But at the same time, for people like you and me who think of the justice part as being even more important than the efficiency part, this is also just the right thing to do. So it's yet another one of these cases, again, I keep using that word providential, but this is another one of those senses, I guess you could say, in which the Green New Deal idea uh, involves this kind of wonderful sort of providential convergence of two distinct, compelling imperatives that happen to converge on exactly the same action plan. Yeah. Um, that may, yeah, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'd like to let, let me change gears one more time, at least, uh, sure. on my list of, of Ryan, Ryan is a pseudo mechanic. He likes gears quite a bit. <laughs> so he wants, he wants to attend uh, to all the gears. I used um, to be totally into bicycling, so I, I like gears. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready for you, Ryan. <laughs> I guess this isn't quite quite in the wheelhouse of a green new deal, but I was I was recently reading an article that about um you know someone someone had done a feasibility study on the on the possibility of geoengineering and um in the you know in its cheapest forms, you know, sort of blasting sulfate aerosols up into the the stratosphere or something like that. You a, a a quite a small and poor country could probably finance something like this or even just a single like wealthy individual um how how do you you know i i guess if you've thought if you've sort of considered it at all how how do you think about you know geoengineering possibilities and in 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 terms of like you know the international diplomatic uh, arena or just like the, the, the Green New Deal policy sort of portfolio? Yeah, so, so you've put your finger, Ryan, on, on a kind of a sort of a fault line, I think, within the environmental movement, but, but happily not within the, the Green New Deal movement at, at, at this point, right? So, and, and forgive me if I'm saying anything that you're already very well familiar with, but, but, and, and I'm just sort of a novice at, at, at this matter yeah, anyway, but, 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 but my understanding is that, you know, there are some very promising looking technologies that you might think of under a broad umbrella of sort of abatement technologies, right? Sort of means of removing bad stuff that we've sort of put out there, whether it be into the air or into the water, even, um, you know, uh, into the ground. Uh, and that furthermore, um, those sorts of technologies or, 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 or modalities of, of dealing with environmental problems can furthermore be sort of subclassified under a somewhat broader heading of a kind of 
geo or meteoro uh, engineering, right? Um, so that you could actually try to act directly on the environment in ways that kind of counteract or mitigate some of the bad ways that we've already acted on the environment without quite realizing it until kind of late in the game that we had been doing that. Um, and the, the, the divide, I think, is basically as follows. There are some who say, yeah, let's push down that line, let's push down that path, um, because that those that's a pathway that's promising when it comes to developing ways of undoing the damage that we've done. Um, there are others who say, no, whatever you do, don't do that, because then that's going to lead everybody into a sort of false sense of security that we can just go on and keep, you know, belching filth <laughs> to bring back the president into the, right. uh, to keep bel- belching <laughs> filth into the environment. Um, it's sort of roughly analogizable to you remember when um, some of the new uh, medications, uh, drugs and, and vitamin treatments that were uh, developed in the 90s for AIDS uh, were sort of coming online. Uh, there was a kind of ambivalence um, in the reaction to that, too. Some people greeted it as a development that meant, hey, well, we might ultimately be able just to sort of cure AIDS or at the very least uh, postpone, you know, nasty health consequences indefinitely and to the point where somebody would have been dying of natural causes anyway. So some said rah, rah. Others said no, because now this is going to make everybody engage in promiscuous sex again and transmit the virus everywhere. Uh, and and I, I ultimately don't, I don't actually know what the ultimate upshot of that debate was. My impression is that the, you know, sort of, so, uh, sort of safe sex advocacy and modalities continue to be propagated as the cures or treatments continue to be developed. And it's a kind of a, you know, both, both pushing on both fronts at one once sort of thing. Now, given that, right, if, if, if I don't know if, if you can, you know, kind of carry over from that example to this one when it comes to what to do now, it's, I'll just say that it's not immediately clear to me that you can't push along both fronts fronts simultaneously, right? It's not immediately clear to me that you can't have kind of a both and there. So, you know, getting back to maybe Jonathan Chait, for example, would prefer, <laughs> right, like the, the, the abatement uh, strategies um, and others would prefer not to do that because they think that that will lead to a false sense of security or a kind of complacency or will you know distract attention away from something that's more urgent or 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 or, or, or sort of divert resources that can be better spent or more cost effectively spent on actually developing the new non um, uh, carbon emitting technologies and and I'm, I'm not competent to you know to kind of uh, make a final judgment as to which of those arguments, if any, would be would be right. But I, I would say that, as a general desideratum, it seems to me sort of beyond cattle that we ought to first we ought first to ask whether it is in fact possible to do a kind of a both and strategy here. If it is indeed possible to do both, in other words, if it is not the case that doing one somehow automatically just sort of takes away from the other, uh, either by diverting resources or diverting attention or leading to a false sense of security. If it's not the case that that happens, then yeah, um, go both and. And devote some effort as part of this deliberation process that we've been talking about, that the Green New Deal will basically involve, and indeed in a certain sense be, um, as part of that process, do actually, you know, actually think about it and actually study it and actually try to figure out, you know, who's right uh, on that, on that score, right? Who's, who's right as between those who say, no, we can produce, we can go, we can do both and without it's taking away from either term of the conjunction 
or is it those people who say you have to do one or the other because you know doing both does take away from uh, one term of the, the disjunction you know so um, that, that that would be what, what, what I would think at least at this stage you know and again it might be that within a year or two years or five years we realize oh you know what it really was a bad idea to think in terms of geoengineering it's it actually takes it, it's not very effective and it takes resources away from what would be much more effective namely the more rapid development of uh, carbon neutral technologies or it leads to that false sense of security or complacency so that it leads to more pollution more than we can actually keep up with with the abatement technologies or it has like you know side effects that nobody had ever contemplated before like you know, it's actually turning the world into uh, an easy bake oven or something, you know, or, or it, it's destroying entire species or something, right? Or, you know, like, 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 you know, kind of like some people say you have to worry about GMOs because you don't know what kind of weird genetic uh, upshots might result. I mean, I get that. I get that line of, of worry. And it could be that some such worry could be raised here too, but I, I just don't know enough about the technology to be questioned to, to have formed even a provisional opinion about, you know, um, yeah. I don't know whatever dangers might attend their promise. I do. I do know that the promise looks remarkable. You know, what I don't know is, of course, whether there's anything that counteracts anything seriously counteractive in, re in relation to that that promise. Um, cool. Yeah, I've. Let's see. I've got one more question here. Um, sure. Maybe Alexi has some more after this, but. I, I want to return to the 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 kind of the the political dynamics. Um, sure. You know, and the and the question of you know big fossil fuel uh, oh, yeah. business. Um, because I I I went ahead and looked up just now um, the the fate of of coal companies over the last few years, um, and you know I think for any reasonably intelligent far-sighted business analyst you could have said in like 2003 that coal is on its way out and especially once fracking got going and you started getting lots and yeah. lots of cheap natural gas then you think oh, boy yeah. coal is uh you know these coal companies ought to start doing that to start making some moves if they want to preserve themselves as as a going concern um most of them didn't do that um, and th this uh, in October last year, Mission Coal uh, went bankrupt, and that was the the fifth coal fifth coal company bankruptcy in three years. Um, these, you know, these companies just you know they they instead of realistically um, considering their real position in in the you know as as the economy develops and as the as the market you know, for power developed uh, and trying to anticipate that and counteract, you know, make, preserve themselves, they doubled down, they stuck their heads in the sand, you know, they, they engaged in a lot of denial and, and funding of, you know, uh, climate change denier, um, you know, pseudo think tanks and such. Um, it seems to me quite likely that oil companies will do the same thing, that, um, you know, the, 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 they, they already have huge, you know, assets on their books, which, which are, are, you know, leases for big fields. Some of them are even in the Arctic now that you can get to, you can actually drill in the Arctic because the, the ice is so f far retreated. Um, and that suggests to me that there's just going to have to be this sort of existential struggle 
over over the that 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 the oil companies will not uh, try to transition and and just like sub, you know submit themselves to a, a zero energy economy. That instead they'll just try to keep the gravy train flowing as long as possible. And what we'll have to do is just basically like whack them down, you know, in into the ground. Um, do you think uh, folks should be ready for that that possibility? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think we should be ready for the possibility. I, I don't think we should. Um this sort of, this sort of uh, reimplicates um, this observation I made earlier that I, where I, I uh, kind of in connection with what our international posture ought to be, um, to the effect that we ought to sort of assume the best of people or, or entities until until shown otherwise. Um, what we ought to do, I think, uh, for what for whatever that's worth, is is to sort of assume that these are people who are acting, you know, or at least capable of acting um, with goodwill or in good faith. Uh, and to assume that they're capable of recognizing their rational self-interest, uh, and to assume that they um, will um, sort of move into doing the right or sensible thing as long as it doesn't involve an actual threat to their very lives or existences, and make policy on that ground um, while being prepared for it possibly to emerge that in fact they're just evil, right? <laughs> or, or that they're, or that they're stupid, right? Or that you know they don't they don't recognize their own rational self interest, or, or 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 both, right? Um, of course, Socrates would say that's the same thing, right? Right? Evil is just a form of, mm-hmm. of, of ignorance, ignorance, um, which mm-hmm. it might indeed be. Uh, I'm, I tend to be Socratic in some ways and Aristotelian in others, but either way, we should be we should be prepared. It seems to be for that possibility with, without necess- without committing ourselves to its truth until we actually know its truth. Now, what does that mean in more concrete terms? I think it means a, a number of things, right? One is, as uh, new technologies and new, uh, again, sort of more carbon neutral or, or environmentally friendly uh, modalities are developed, um, we should be inviting these firms into investing in them and getting in on them at the front end, not in, not with controlling positions, um, but at least as stakeholders, as sort of partial stakeholders, right, who who stand to profit by these developments, even if they don't stand to control them, which means, again, not letting right. them have controlling or majority stakes in these things, but having stakes that can be profitable. At the same time, the tax code already allows for write-offs on asset losses or even just deteriorating assets, Right. And, you know, one way of thinking of a bunch of petroleum fields that are underground that some company has the leasing rights to, or actually one way to think of those leasing rights uh, more directly uh, in a world where that particular energy form or source is becoming uh, obsolete is simply as a deteriorating asset, right? It's a, a, a lease is a, is a legal claim. It's a right. It's a kind of financial asset. And it's simply a deteriorating asset when the world basically passes by the technology in question. And, you know, the the kind of cult, the, the, if we were truly a market-based society, I mean, if, if the right-wingers who are always talking about the magic of the market were serious about this, what they would say is, well, you know, screw them, let them die then, man, because they made some bad investments. They should have depleted, <laughs> you know, they should have used those assets up before they depreciated rather than just letting them kind of lie fallow and depreciate. But in fact, we don't, you know, that that's what they should say. That's not, of course, what they do say. It's also not what we do as a society. I mean, our, again, our mm-hmm. tax code uh, 
provides all kinds of favors to or consolation prizes, you might say, uh, to firms that lose money, that borrow money, whose assets deteriorate or decline, you know, lose value. Um, so there's also that, right? It's not, it won't be a complete and total loss. They'll get to write it off. And if, again, we, 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 we do a good enough job of making clear to them at the front end, far enough in advance, what the writing on the wall really is, where this is all going to go, and how they have a golden opportunity to get in on it at the ground floor by making investments in it, even though we're not going to let them control it, um, it seems to me that, you know, most of them will probably play ball, right? Just if, if for no other reason than that their shareholders only win under that circumstance. And if they don't do it, well, they're not only, of course, going to be presiding over the the, the sort of liquidation of their the liquidations of their companies, but they're also, of course, going to face all sorts of shareholder suits against them uh, for violating their fiduciary duties in failing, even you know so much as to act on what was clearly the thing to do as far as future prospects were concerned. I don't want to get too wonky on you guys as a as an enterprise organizational law professor, but no, as some, wonky as you like, as wonky as you like. <laughs> some, some some nitpicker will say, "Well, no, shareholders couldn't sue them for that because you know it's a business judgment, and the business judgment rule, you know, insulates them from any suits of that kind." Blah 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 blah. But you know, if if that that's partly true, but it's not true when decisions are truly egregious, and if you can show, yes, you can pierce the veil, right? Uh, well, this this wouldn't be a case of piercing the veil. Um, this would simply ah, this would okay. be a a case where you actually have shareholders who would be able to bring the cause of action. Uh, bring, they would mm -hmm. have a cause of action. They would be able to bring a suit, either a derivative suit or a direct suit or both. If, again, uh, the uh, actions of the executives was so egregious as to amount to a form of recklessness rather than mere sort mm -hmm. of bad judgment. Right. And it seems to me that we can make the Green New Deal so, and, and, and hence the transition to renewable energy sources, we can make this so obviously and dramatically the right thing to do pecuniarily as well as you know environmentally and justicely um, that it would it would have it, it could only be deemed an act of consummate recklessness for any executive of a, of a petroleum company not to have made some strategic investments in the particular industries that we're planning to develop and promote um, and I don't think they want to risk that I wouldn't think that these executives would want to risk that. But even if they do, you know, then they'll, you know, their shareholders will, will milk them uh, and the companies right. will go down and they'll simply be replaced by companies that are actually not destroying the environment just as readily as dinosaurs were replaced by mammals. You know, I mean, it just, it is, that's another, of course, uh, trading on another metaphor that these market types like. They seem to love evolutionary metaphors. Well, <laughs> all right, dinosaurs, you know, consider the Green that's New it. Deal a kind of, you know, you can consider the Green New Deal a meteor shower of sorts. Mm. And you have the option of either, you know, growing feathers and becoming birds uh, or growing fur and becoming mammals, which you have it within your power to do, or you can sink in the La Brea tar pits. I mean, it's, the choice is yours. <laughs> That's right. You know, That's you're going right. down with that tar, another petrochemical or petro product, <laughs> as I understand it. <laughs> so. Yeah. I love it. It's so it's so empowering to see that that we finally are taking control of dictating to, to those 
uh, powerful corporations and executives, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that they need to, they need to come in line with with our goals, um, or or they'll face extinction. That's a that's a beautiful beautiful empowering political uh, vision, right there. Yeah, it's it's such a wonderful moment. It's it's almost like. I, you know, one way I sort of think of the the sort of revelations that came first through the Occupy movement, which revealed that we actually do care about equality in this country, then by the kind of runaway bestseller status that uh, Thomas Piketty's book uh, enjoyed in 2014, a book about inequality, which you previously hadn't been allowed to talk about without being accused of engaging in class war. Just the fact that that became a bestseller. Then, of course, the phenomenon that was Bernie's candidacy, which, you know, again, I joined basically because I just thought it was a good cause and it would get some good issues on the table, but it, we almost won that thing. Um, and now, of course, with uh, Alexandria's victory and with the remarkable midterm election more generally, the, those results in the House, uh, and just everything that's been happening, first of all, there's a sort of accelerating pace at which these these indicators are coming along. But secondly, what's being indicated, it seems to me, it makes me think that it's almost like every one of us was individually and isolatedly thinking a particular set of thoughts mm. and thinking mm. that he or she was the only one and thus not daring to stick his head or her head up above the parapet, right? And, right. Then, and then a few of us kind of looked up and we looked around and we saw, oh my God, there's another set of eyes who's, you know, from uh, in a head that's poked itself up above the parapet. And you know, you're looking around and you suddenly see all these heads kind of looking up over the trenches and then all of a sudden we start yelling backwards to the other people in our own trenches saying, hey, there are other heads up here. Hey, everybody, heads up. And all of a sudden it's <laughs> over the top. You know, All of a sudden we're out and we realize that we, each of us is realizing that he or she wasn't actually alone or insane in thinking these thoughts. And nor was he or she alone in, in, in wanting to do something. And that's just enormously collectively energizing and empowering because, you know, the only thing what this means is the only thing that was standing in our way, we realized, was a, a kind of ignorance and ignorance about the fact that there were lots of other people like us. And not only yes. that, but that they or rather we are the overwhelming majority. I mean, the numbers, yes. right? A George, Ma- you know, George Mason University is, is not what I would call a left-leaning entity, right? I mean, it's like basically University of Chicago wannabe. It's sort of like you know, <laughs> ground zero for for reactionary political quote unquote think tanks and stuff. And yet, they, in conjunction with Yale University, a week and a half or two ago, conducted a poll about you know what are American attitudes toward a Green New Deal. And it was something like 92% of Democrats and something like 64% of Republicans, meaning something like you know, 80 some odd percentage of uh, percent of Americans. Now that's pretty amazing, right? That even Republicans actually want this. But of course, Mitch McConnell's not going to tell them that because he doesn't give a flying, you know, a, a, you know what about right. about right. most Republicans? If you're talking about individual Americans who identify with that party, he doesn't care about them. Neither does Donald Trump. Neither do any of those ridiculous ridiculous oligarchs who are in the Republican caucus of the Senate. I mean, they, they, these are not representing anybody. Um, not even They're not even representing Republicans. So you know, and it's clear when you read this polling data, right, that, that if 82% of the country favors the Green New Deal, including 60-some-odd, maybe 64% of self-identified Republicans, why isn't this happening already? <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, and and that's but uh, but beyond that, I, I think you're hitting on something very very important. In so far as uh, one, ideologically, people aren't so situated in rigid ideological stations, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they they just want their lives to be better, I and that's why right. you know. Yeah. 
So, so there's that people are very movable. And the other thing is that like people's will and what they want is not often reflected in the actual legislation. So it's, it's, it's quite empowering to have like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who, because she's not taking money from the donor class is able to say, no, I'm here for the people. And I I think I know what they want, but I'm going to listen to them Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to lie to them. I'm going to try to do what they want. And the more that, that we do that, the more that what gets, enacted will reflect the interests and the desires of the people. And, and that's the thing that can happen. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, one way to think about our sort of strange political arrangements, which are partly rooted in the Constitution and partly rooted in just sort of corrupt practices that have been developed as sort of customs by one or another legislative body, is as this kind of enormous sort of filtering device that basically launders people's preferences by the time they reach, you know, actual decision makers. And the laundering is so thorough and complete that, you know, basically what the leaders often do, what, what the leaders do is very often completely unrecognizable um, as a you know, relative to any actual preferences that people have. One of those, you know, sort of filtering devices is just the bloody Senate itself, where, you know, this is, it's literally the case that if you are a South Dakotan or a, now, a North Dakotan, you as one single person from one of the Dakotas have the same power in the Senate as literally 40,000 Californians, which is completely absurd. And, you know, I get it, you know, in order to get the Constitution ratified, you had to kind of placate these states that had these ridiculous conceptions of themselves as being nation states (laughs) rather than former colonies. Plus, of course, it was, you know, uh, southern states in particular, which were slave states back then, were particularly keen on that. I, I get that. But, you know, those particular reasons for the Senate either are no longer present or should not be present, <laughs> um, yep. right? And sort of similarly with, you know, gerrymandering, um, the gerrymandering that seems to occur almost routinely now when it comes to congressional districting means that even the House uh, functions as a filtering device in this way. It's not as dramatic or as starkly filtering as the Senate is, but it still is thus filtering. And then, you know, another device, and this is, I think, just partly a matter of jurisprudence, you know, sort of really bad Supreme Court decisions, but it's also partly a matter of um, really stupid practices, is the very fact that we conduct political campaigns over paid media means, of course, that everybody has to get money in order to run, and then that means, in turn, that they have to, you know, basically, you know, not be too unfriendly to people who have money. And that's not what a deliberate democracy is supposed to be or how it's supposed to work. Um, What we really ought to have, in my view, is there ought to be basically the public should reclaim the airwaves and all of the other infrastructures over which media is conducted during election seasons. And it should reclaim them and make of them a kind of public square in the interest of its own self-government. This polity is all about self-governance. And it, can't, it simply cannot engage in self-government without the infrastructure of speaking and deliberating. And the infrastructure of speaking and deliberating at Zuccotti Park was just a nice big flight of stairs in a sort of amphitheater-shaped space. But if you're talking about a polity or a democracy or a demos that is 340 million people covering a continent, rather than, I don't know, some 5,000 people in a little park down right off of Wall Street... The, right. you know, right, the technology of, of, of collective deliberation is rather more technical, right, and involves various media. And I don't see why we have to, you know, the thing is, everybody seems to understand this in theory that, you know, that the public owns all that 
stuff, and we we lease it out to media companies, right? So Fox News right. doesn't, doesn't own the megahertz that it occupies; it leases them. <laughs> and and, and, and <laughs> right, Robert, do do you know how many young people don't realize that we used to have channels that were public that you just like press it and you didn't need to subscribe to cable TV. You could just watch channels. You could just There's watch so it. Many, yeah. They didn't know. They didn't know that was a public good. They didn't understand. Like they, they're shocked. And there used to be this thing until, until like about 30 years ago and ni- until 1988, there was, you, you know about this thing, but the, the fairness doctrine that the FCC maintained, which was to the effect that if some private media company offered time, including sold time to some, somebody advocating some political position, they had mm-hmm. to give equal time to some contrary right. position, right? It was just understood that in a democracy where self-government is a guiding or an actuating ideal, it need a foundational ideal, that the whole thing was supposed to be about self-government in the first place. Even the Declaration of Independence effectively says as much, right? That in such a polity, you, you have to have some, again, modality over which the deliberating happens. Just like in order for us to think, you've got to have neurons, right? These brain cells are like the media of our internal thinking process. And likewise, we have media of collective thinking as a polity, collective deliberating. And that includes, right, you know, megahertz and whatever hertz and cable and, 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 and satellite and all that stuff. And it's understood that the public owns all of those communi- all of those sort of, uh, right, right. Those, those, yeah, you know, like that, 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 that ether, as it were, and that it leases it out to various private companies. And the scandal, it's crazy. I mean, imagine, imagine you owned a building and then you, you and let's say you had to have access, per, let's say you own a building and you, you leased out various rooms, apartments in the building to various people. And let's say that in one of the apartments was like the fuse box for the entire building. And so, and you had to have access to that fuse box, like in case lights went out or something, you had to be able to get to it. And imagine, so you, you nevertheless, you lease that apartment to somebody. And then as, as the owner of the building, you say, oh, you know, I have to get into the apartment right now to get to this fuse box. Can I pay you to get into this thing? In order, <laughs> I don't think you would do that. You, you would probably say there is an easement, to use legal terms again, yes, from property right. law. There is an easement that comes with this particular apartment. I will sell it to you for a cheaper price because there is this easement, of course, and it might inconvenience you on those rare occasions when the power goes out in some other apartment. But there is this easement pursuant to which I get to access this fuse box as the owner of this building responsible for enabling power to get to the other apartments or other units in the building. It seems to me it's sort of the same thing, right? We, we basically, we lease out these, these, these spaces to these media companies. They come with an implicit easement, and that easement is that we have to reclaim them at particular periods for purposes of self-government because this is what we are, a self-governing polity, which makes the capacity to lease this stuff to you companies possible in the first place. Because, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you weren't here in America, you'd be somewhere else where probably the public would actually, you know, actually run the media. And so, you know, I don't think we should be, it shouldn't cost anybody, anybody who can get a certain, say, threshold number of signatures to show that they're like a serious candidate for something uh, or that they're advocating a serious position that's not just like a fringe position that three people uh, advocate. Anybody who, say, meets some sort of threshold like that should have automatic, unpaid access to the mechanisms of collective self-deliberation. And then what that means is, of course, more views get aired, for one thing, and it means that the people who are representing us are not having to spend literally half of their hours each day, which is, I think, the statistic now, 
looking for money from people, even you know, even after an election, spending half of their hours seeking money from people. And of course, it means that you know they won't then have to be they won't be beholden to those kind of people. I guess I'm just to sort of sum it up. I mean, I'm sort of thinking, you know, why do we have to buy what's already ours for, a, right. for the compelling purpose of collective self-government, which is what this polity is, you know, again, which is the, the, the most foundational thing about this polity. Amen. Amen, brother. Yeah, Amen. exactly. We, right. Well, no, we, we're undoing this weird inversion. We're just tr- we're, we're trying to, to put things first things first, yeah, right? Like, exactly. The, like, the, we come. The collective comes first. All these entities are part of the collective and serve it. But but we have to like re retake that uh, priority and that that that, that clearly obvious uh, role that that the collective needs needs to take. That's the so thing. Makes, yeah. It's yeah. A, the, poly, the polity makes them possible, right? That's what they sort of forget. The polity makes them possible. So anything that you do that undermines the polity or that impedes the capacity of the polity to nourish itself. As a, as a going concern, right, as an ongoing um, organic entity, is ultimately self-subversive as well. I, I, it's amazing to me that these people somehow lose sight of that fact, that they're really committing a kind of a slow, slow-walking suicide um, when they try to undermine the very polity that, that makes them themselves possible. Reminds me of a classic Onion article, um, the, the headline of which is, American people hire high-powered lobbyists to push interests in Congress. <laughs> exactly exactly right yeah. and, and, and some cases it, in some cases it's even worse it's like congress hires high-powered lobby to push interest in congress right because yeah. you know these congress members themselves oftentimes hate they really they hate the fact they resent the fact that they actually have to spend all their time looking for money from media people I mean, a lot of these people don't really want to have to be asking for money all the time but the problem is that it seems like they, every, no one of them feels like he or she can kind of stop that alone, and they can't seem to get their act together to work together on it. And I'm assuming that has something to do with the fact that the parties who are in power at the moment have sort of, in effect, benefited by the system that we have, even if they resent having to ask for the money. At least right. it has them on top, right? But my guess is that, and again, this might be a starry-eyed self-delusion too, but my guess is that what happens is when we, when the forces of light retake the Congress and the White House, which I'm convinced is going to happen with the 2020 election, um, when we retake it, what happens then is we actually have principled people in power. And these people are going to say, look, yeah, we have finally now won, even under the present system. But we also think that that was just dumb luck and that the present system is ridiculous and that it has to be changed. So they will then push for change. And now the bad faith actors, the Republicans, will be willing to sign on as well because they'll realize that it's possible for them to lose under the present arrangements. So in other words, right. you know, the Republicans only care about winning and losing. But once they lose, that means they'll be willing to change it. The Democrats, I think, care about winning and losing, but they also are much more principled and care about getting it right. Not all of them, but most, I think, a lot of That's them. That's right. Not all of them. And, and Robert, I, I want to ask you not to so, – so so answer this however you, you see fit because you, you've worked with – everyone you've mentioned, I, I think, uh, are very principled. Uh, there are Democrats that are very um, – I you know, I don't want to say what their motives are or, or, or if it's just ideological, but, but their, their neoliberalism shines through in a way that seems to cut against some of the egalitarian principles we've discussed. And, 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 and there does seem to be this split within the party. 
Um, so it doesn't seem to be just the Republicans we need to be wary about, but but also some Democrats that want to perhaps co-opt uh, the Green New Deal or Medicare for All and then like change it to serve capital. Uh, that That is something I think that's it's almost as important to be vigilant about, don't you think? I do. Th- I think it's very important to be vigilant about that. Um, I do think, um, however, that, that there's a here's a, a here's a theory I sort of have, or at least a a conjecture, let's call it, um, that that I think bears on the form that caution here should take. So mm. let's let's say let's partition uh, the class of, of Democratic legislators um, in House and the Senate. Mm. Let's say sure. into, into three classes, or maybe we'll say two classes, but one of the classes that has two subclasses. So start, the first class is just those who just really are principled, you know, the, the folk we've mainly been alluding to this evening. So, you know, AOC on the House side, Ro Khanna on the House side, quite a few others, of course, on the House side. People like uh, Liz Warren and, and Bernie Sanders, um, although, again, not exclusively right. them uh, on the Senate side, yep. you know, Sherrod Brown and so forth. So that's the first class. Let's let's ignore them for the moment. Let's assume that those guys are going to do the right thing, pretty much irrespective of, of cost or whatever, you know, of, right, of right. You know, political consequence. Um, the remaining uh, 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 class then will be those who are a little bit more instrumentalist. Let's say they're they're not necessarily completely unprincipled, but instrumentalism is a more important determinant of what they do than it is uh, of what other people in that first class do, people like Bernie and Liz and, and, yes, and, and Alexandria. Right. Um, okay, so um, within that class, and so within this, this class, uh, let's partition them into those who um, are kind of willing to be compromising or a little bit more Republican-looking, um, basically because they think they have to in order not to be voted out of office or in order not to lose or maybe because they think that the public is actually more to the right than it actually is, that they've, they've underestimated the progressivism of the American public, or they've underestimated the degree to which we actually do care about inequality, um, because Republicans did such a good job of concealing that fact for so long. That's, let's say you've got those, the people who are sort of, they're still principled, but they're also pragmatic in a possibly misguided way on the basis of, say, false premises. Um, uh, and then the final third group, which would be like the second subclass of this second class, would be those who just basically are neoliberals in, in, in sort of justice people's clothing, right? That they're basically just, you know, they're, right. they're just Republicans who, are, who, who have found it expedient to call themselves Democrats in, in their districts mm-hmm. because they, they, get, mm-hmm. they win that way. All right. Now, I don't, know that, that, I don't know how many people are in that third class. I like to think it's a pretty small number. In other words, I like to think that there's a very that the number of self-identified Democrats who are actually uh, neoliberal on the merits, so to speak, who are actually good faith believers in neoliberal mm, ideas mm, is mm. small. I actually, I, I might be wrong about this, but it seems to me that they're probably a minority, a significant minority of the Democratic Party. Um, and But I, I don't know exactly how small a minority they might be, but I'm, I'm thinking they're right. fairly small. It's it's the it's the sort of the first subclass of the second class that I think are maybe most interesting for our purposes. That's to say, mm-hmm. those who are as principled as the Bernies and the Lizzes, but who are convinced, in my view, erroneously, uh, that they have to sort of soft pedal their progressivism in order to win, or in order to get votes, or in order to keep office in their districts, or whatever. Here's what I think. 
I think that that, class, that, that particular group, we'll just call group two, uh, I think that all of those in group two are going to get, become dramatically more progressive in the coming mm. months and years as they see that the premises that they believed were false. In other words, as they see that the country is not mm. actually neoliberal in its fundamental orientation, as they see that actually even 64% of Republicans like the Green New Deal idea, as they see that we are actually a center-left country, not even a center country, let alone a center-right country. We're a center-left country at worst, <laughs> and probably a little, right, even though, right. you know, my guess would be a little left even of center-left. Um, as they see that, this doesn't mean that they're, you know, flip-floppers or they're just checking the wind and that they're therefore unprincipled. What it means, I think, is they realize, oh, you know, I was making a pragmatic judgment before. My thought was that, well, better me than an outright reactionary, but the only way it can be me is if I make a few accommodations to yes, neoliberalism. Right. As they right. realize that that's just not true, that they don't have to do that, that that, that that premise, again, is false, I believe with a great sigh of relief, they're all going to say, oh, thank God, and just become outright, unapologetic, transparently left-leaning lefties again. God, I hope so. And they're going to feel clean, I hope so. right? They're going to feel like they went through some kind of detox process. Yes, because they would. Because they're think, oh, I don't have to be a whore anymore. You know, I don't have to be a strumpet right. for, you know, right. this or that I th interest, I, you know? I mean, I think Joe Biden is the most sweet strumpet we've ever seen. He's just like a, <laughs> I mean, he, he's just the, right? Like the most relatable strumpet he there is. is. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, my guess is that his instincts are largely probably still pretty left-leaning, but he has this kind of crazy notion that the only way he wins is if he, you know, rolls up the shirt sleeves and looks like some old sort of hard hat reactionary who, who beat up Vietnam War <laughs> protesters in Chicago in 1968. And I think when he realizes that, that just ain't the case, he probably gets he probably gets a bit more uh, unapologetically lefty. That being said, I, I suspect that he's you know he's sort of old enough that he might actually hold some actual con sort of conservative yes. views from our point of view. And, right. And so in that sense, I think he's kind of suboptimal. But I would bet you that, for example, Sherrod Brown, who is, you know, very, very, I, I actually put him in that first camp that I mentioned. I think he's much more right. principled than, 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 than just sort of, you know, uh, pandering or what have you. But he, he can't, obviously he can't be unmindful of the fact that it's regularly said that, you know, well, you know, the voting public in Ohio and in Pennsylvania and in other purple states, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. is, it's got some conservatism to it. Um, my guess is that he's going to be thrilled as he learns that actually people are, are, are more left-leaning even than we had thought. And my guess is that, you know, even somebody like Claire McCaskill, I'm not, you know, I, she's, she's, for me, she was like the toughest case. I mean, she's not there anymore but right. because she lost right. in November. But the way she talks sometimes, I couldn't tell whether this was just because she knew that there were a bunch of reactionaries whose votes she had to yep. get to. Or whether she just was somewhat reactionary. Right. And that's why whether she, she internalized that. Yeah, yeah might have internalized it or maybe been that way all along. I don't, she's a harder case for me, but I'm pretty, I got a pretty funny feeling that the real gut instincts of, of some of these kind of present day middle of the rotors like Kirsten Gillibrand is probably a bit more to the left than they've felt safe to admit, maybe even to themselves 
uh, over the I last hope 20 so. years. I, I, you know, I, I might be being optimistic in a, in a, in a I hope so. Yeah. I, I almost feel like the Zuccotti Park uh, utopia is more likely. I, like, I, I really think that there was something to what you were saying that people that actually engage in these truly democratic ways of coming together in space uh, experience the, the liberation of that egalitarian way of, of recognizing other. And I mean, I just remember loving Occupy, like, oh, there's free books. This is amazing. Like, just like, <laughs> this is how this is how life should be like what are you talking about of course books should be free what are you talking you know like just like here you go I mean, here's people, a book i think people are generally i think people i think we just have natural tendencies toward reciprocity yes. sure there are some people who maybe are born sociopaths i'm you know trump might have been born like with a missing gene or something he might not even be really fully human it's hard to tell right with that guy but right but, right. but i think most people i think the overwhelming but Oh, that seems to me the overwhelming majority of people, um, you know, kind of respond in kind. Um, and, you know, so the library that you mentioned over at Zuccotti Park, the cool thing about it is, yeah, you could take the books out free. Um, most people understood that, well, if you have books to give to it, you should do that, too. Right. And that was right. where all those books came from. They were all donated. The reason they were, you know, people get, and then, as you'll recall, you know, by, by, by the time we reached kind of, you know, maximum Zuccotti, you know, like literally like a couple of days before uh, Bloomberg uh, shut us down. Um, you know, we had something like three, four, maybe five bicycles uh, over on the northern end of the park that were, you know, raised above the the, the the floor, so to speak, and had generators attached to them. And people would just mm. voluntarily pedal to generate electricity that would then be stored in batteries that would sort of power the place at night. So, you know, everybody was freely contributing power, literal like electrical power to the operation. <laughs> There were like three or four, you know, tents at the, I guess it was the southwest corner with red duct tape crosses on them where doctors and nurses volunteered mm. free medical care to mm. people there. And you probably remember, I'm guessing, Alexi, the, the old ladies who were, they called themselves that, I wouldn't call them, but they were, they identified themselves <laughs> as the old ladies who like were knitting uh, sweaters and, and mm -hmm. hats for people mm -hmm. for, for when the weather got cold. And then, you know, tons <laughs> of people like donated food and Trinity Church and even McDonald's, for God's sake, let people use the restrooms free of charge as a way of uh, sort of an expression of, of solidarity. A guy from right. some huge, hugely rich businessman in, in Seoul, South Korea, phoned up a couple of the local pizza establishments surrounding the park and said, I want you to feed that entire park tonight. I don't care what it costs, I'll mm -hmm. pay you. I mean, it was just, there was just this beautiful flowering of, of just generous, open-hearted yeah, giving, right? Oh, and another time, you remember, like, you'd be standing there, and then you'd kind of, you'd suddenly be aware of some motion just in the periphery of your of your vision, and you'd look, and it'd be somebody who had gone over and picked up a broom and was sweeping up some broken glass that she had just sort of seen there, and then she yeah. throws it in the garbage, and then she takes the broom back over to one of the broom stations. You know, there were various trees that would have, like, a little sign, a broom station, and there'd be brooms and dustpans, you know, leaning against it. It was just an unbelievably gorgeous thing, and people just gave willingly because they knew that right, this is right. the way it was. You know, you, you take freely and you give freely, and nobody was like an asshole, like, you know, just taking more than they give. And here's the funniest thing of all. This is actually one of the most remarkable, two related things that were most remarkable of all, is, like, one time, I still remember one evening, like, there was a sudden commotion. I heard some kind of yelling or shouting or something, and what, what it emerged that some, a couple of pickpockets sort of thought, oh, here's some easy marks, you know, idealistic kids. And they kind of snuck into the park and they were kind of sidling up to people acting like they were interested in what was being talked about. And then they would kind of, you know, <laughs> steal their phones. And finally somebody realized what was going on and said, shouted. And then the culprits began to run. 
and they were immediately apprehended, um, you know, sort of caught by everybody. But then here's what's cool. Nobody, like, punched them or beat them up and said, how dare you, you know, take advantage of us, you know, you mother... You know. Instead, yeah. they just basically apprehended them, and they were, like, there was an internal... We had, like, this internal security force of Gulf War and Iraq War veterans who had joined us. <laughs> they, they were, like, the official sort of security force, and they didn't, like, rough people up or roll yeah, them. Or yeah. They just held them firmly, and they took them to the police who were always around the park, you know, sort of surrounding it. And just handed them over to the police and said, these guys were, you know, stealing people's phones, uh, officer. And then the officers would arrest them and take them off. And so there's this kind of cooperation, even, between the cops and the occupiers. And that was the, the, the related point I was going to notice that, you know, the occupiers themselves, they, we would routinely, you know, talk to the police and just say, you know, we just want to thank you for what you're doing. I mean, first of all, we th- you know, you're part of the 99% too. And, you know, so, last right. we checked, you know, not a lot of billionaires, you know, sort of volunteer to work in the, in the NYPD. And, and second of all, we actually just really are grateful to you that you're here. Like, so when we do apprehend pickpockets, we can hand them over to you. And, like, people aren't going to, like, you know, take advantage of us and stuff. Um, and I think a lot of that, not all of the cops, but most of the cops, I think we're actually kind of appreciative of that. And they developed a kind of this, this cute sort of affection toward us. Like, Oh, you, you guys are cute. You know? Um, so, you know, that's just sort of the way it was, you know, I mean, even when in other, in other words, even when somebody didn't have that reciprocity ethos and just came in to exploit people's kindness or generosity or naivety or you know just tendency to expect the best from people even when that happened it was all done in a very civilized way by people who were voluntarily acting as security personnel and not just taking advantage of that role as a sort of a a nice opportunity to beat people up without having to face repercussions for it you know well my hope robert is that the green new deal launches a a thousand zuccotti parks a thousand different a hundred thousand different ways in which the, the demos collectively initiates things to help each other and uh, and move us forward that people find both cute and profitable and um, and and something worth doing together to save the earth save each other and and to prosper so uh, thank you so much I, I think you've really outlined um, a number of ways in which it makes imminent sense and uh, I think it's a it's a, a beautiful vision and and something we should all uh, be very excited about really what, what, really gorgeously put Alexi and characteristically so thanks thanks so much for that and, and you know thank you and, and Ryan for 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 doing this it's just been so good to talk to you at, at length and again that leisure without having to kind of get in sound bites and stuff and uh, you know, <laughs> yeah indeed in taglines or whatever right? that's come come back on anytime and, and we, oh, we can talk to. uh so, yeah. yeah philosophy you know anything you want and, and, we could just uh yeah right truly any any subject you guys want to talk about um if i'm even remotely competent i would just love to do that this is we're, we're sort of modeling this kind of deliberate democracy even right here uh this is the way it indeed ought to be, right? one big long this is the good stuff yeah, this is the good stuff yeah this is so so great thanks so much you guys and let's do it again real soon yeah I'll, thanks, always, my friend. always game thanks okay. for coming on appreciate it oh uh, you bet you guys you bet thank you talk to you soon Talk to you soon. All right. Bye for now.